namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami. I was um, thinking this evening how. Uh, delightful and um, inspiring it is to have uh, such a large crowd all uh, joining in with the chanting and together. Um, you know, normally our, our retreats are a, a bit smaller than this and, uh, and certainly life at the monastery doesn't have such a big crowd and uh, so it's, uh, it's hard to remember the last time I sat down and uh, had such a a gang giving voice to the the um, uh, the verses of of, uh, of uh, vandana of um, reverence for the uh, the triple gem. So it's uh, quite a beautiful, delightful uh, uh, quality in that respect. Yesterday evening, I was talking a bit about the um, the four heavenly messengers and the uh, you know the way they they weave into spiritual practice. And one of the most um, powerful uh, teachings uh, I find in the, in the, all of the Theravada scriptures, one that the gives me goosebumps uh, almost every time I, I read it or think of it, is, is the, the point where the, the Buddha recounts his own making of the, the Bodhi resolve, the resolve to enlightenment. Uh, where he says, Why should I, being subject to aging, sickness, uh, sorrow and defilement, being subject to, to death, also seek after that which is too subject to aging, uh, sickness, sorrow, defilement, and death. Why should I not seek the unaging, the unailing, the undefiled, the sorrowless, the deathless? And then I thought, yes, <laughs> I will seek the unaging, the unailing, the undying, the sorrowless, the deathless. And uh, in that simple, um, those simple phrases, it encapsulates the, the, the moment where the Buddha formed the intention, kind of recognizing um, the, the elements of the human uh, predicament that, that he had uh, been limited by, and intuiting, seeing the way beyond, and resolving, yeah, this is what I want to do with my life. This is uh, 
the, uh, the most significant thing for me. This is uh, the direction to, to take. So, uh, in, um, so in Buddhist practice, we kind of reflect upon or, or use those same, those same themes over and over. And they form quite a central part of, of, if you like, empowering that intention or that, that motivation. Because even though, say, we might come on a retreat like this, say, well, I want to you know, improve my practice, I, I need to develop some more samadhi, I need to kind of deepen my insight, uh, I am not yet liberated, um, there is work to be done, you know, this is a good time to do it. And so we sign up for retreat and, uh, and uh, show up, and then um, you know, our uh, sort of intentions are, are all uh, clearly on the screen, and then, uh, not very long thereafter, um, we find ourselves getting uh, upset because we can't remember where we left our shoes, or you know, our, uh, we've we've forgotten our favourite uh, poncho, or <laughs> someone's taken you know, my uh, my walking path, or or uh, it's too hot, or it's too cold, or I sat myself down to someone who's got a cold. Now, is it impolite to move, or should I ask them to move, or? What, what, what happened to the resolve to, <laughs> to, towards insight and concentration, the resolve towards liberation? It get, gets lost in the, in the flow of, of uh, things, looking forward to the bell ringing at the end of the sitting, looking forward to breakfast, looking forward to supper in a week's time. I'm sure of you, some of you are planning it already. <laughs> Not that I can read minds, but uh, I can read human nature. So we get distracted. That's, that's the fact of it. All of us is the same. So even though our intentions can be, can be full and clear at, at times, uh, it drifts, doesn't it? This is how it is. So we have, um, along with the formal practices of meditation, of concentration and insight practice and so forth, then in Buddhist tradition there's a whole slew, a massive uh, repertoire of different kinds of reflection, different themes, deliberate thoughts that we bring to mind to help, uh, if you like, sustain the intention towards bodhi, towards enlightenment, to, to liberation. Sustaining that intention towards the consummation of a human life in in the full awakening, the full realization of truth. So the um, one of these these reflections that we do quite often is um, deliberately remembering the the heavenly messengers, the aid, those of aging, sickness, death, in particular, uh, because we keep forgetting them. We don't, we don't like having them around. And so we, we have a lot of instincts that, that suppress them, ignore them. And that when we do meet with them, then we feel like something's gone wrong. You know, I've got a cold. It shouldn't be that way. Or, uh, oh, my joints are aching. Oh, you know, why, can't, why can't they turn the... Uh, why have they got the sound turned down so low on the PA system? <laughs> Like my father used to say, like, 
I'm not going deaf. People just don't speak clearly nowadays. <laughs> so, yes, Dad. <laughs> what? <laughs> speak up. So, you know, the, the signs of, of aging and ailing and, and death and so forth are around us all the time. But because we don't see them clearly, because we don't actually hear the message of the messengers, we, we look upon them as annoying intrusions, um, things that shouldn't be, that if my life was running smoothly, I wouldn't have to deal with this backache or this memory loss or this uh, hearing deficiency or this uh, aches and pains. Or this, or I wouldn't have to live with the, the grief of loved ones who I've lost or my own aging, my own impending demise. So what happens is that we, we tend to use a lot of the, the busyness and activity, the things that we're involved in, the, the flow of our days and its events and perceptions and projects and memories and plans, to create a smokescreen whereby we, the, we, we, we avoid hearing the, message, the messages. We, we kind of push them aside because um, we just don't want to hear it. <laughs> you know, that feeling of, oh, don't tell me that. I don't want to know that. And somehow we, we feel if, if, as long as someone doesn't give us the bad, doesn't tell us the bad news, then it somehow takes it away. But um, the approach in, in the Buddhist tradition and the, the kind of practice the Buddha encouraged was rather than uh, imp- actually empowering the quality of fear and denial and um, alienation by by suppressing or pushing away or not listening to the messengers of, of aging, sickness, death, that we actually invite them in and say, please, talk to us, give me the message. Um, because, you know, like, as exemplified in the, in the archetype uh, of the, the Buddha's own life, it was actually when he, he heard the messengers, then that was the catalyst whereby he could clarify his intention towards realization. As long as we're pushing it aside, as long as we don't really acknowledge that, then we're still uh, affected by that. We still feel that I am this person who, is, who has sicknesses or who can be subject to sickness. I am this person who is aging. I am this person who is, is going to die. And, uh, and so that uh, it's a strange irony, but the more we try and push it away, the more we actually empower it. The more we try and ignore it, the more real we make it. And we don't realize that's what we're doing. Um, we, uh, we think we're just being optimistic or we're being positive or we're protecting ourselves or looking after our health. But uh, the, 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 the subtext is always that of, of fear and rejection, uh, alienation. You know, that, that feeling of, you know, I mean, it's the same for all of us. That, like I was saying before, that, that sense of something's gone wrong. I shouldn't be experiencing this. How can I get away from this? Taking, um, and it's not as though we don't want to look after the body or we just sort of let ourselves kind of get hungry or get frozen and just sort of sit out in the, on the blacktop and rot. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all impermanent anyway, you know. That's what Ajahn Amaro was saying. So I might as well, you know, why bother feeding it or dressing it or anything? Really just sort of sit here and let it all fall to bits. <laughs> let the... Let the coyotes and the, the turkeys have their pickings and <laughs> what's left can just flow down the drain. You know. 
but uh, that's not it. You know, we, we take care of our, our bodies and, and uh, we look after sicknesses and, and uh, work with uh, uh, the conditions of nature as well as we can. But if, we th- but if in our heart of hearts we feel that something is going terribly wrong because my faculties are fading, because I can't think so straight, because my hearing is diminished, because my joints are aching, or because I, you know, my, uh, I, I've lost some of my loved ones, then if that's, the, the, if that's the going on in the background, then we're still trapping our heart within the, the bounds of, of birth and death. We're, we're shutting the door on that quality of deathlessness, on the unconditioned, on the heart, the, that quality of our own being, which is utterly liberated, which is utterly uh, free, which is unbound by birth and death, by gain and loss, by any kind of limitation whatsoever, by time or space or individuality, any kind of boundary whatsoever. The door, we shut the door on that when we believe in those, um, we create this kind of identification. If we believe that something has gone wrong here. So sometimes Theravada Buddhism in particular gets, gets a, a bad rap for being so nihilistic and negative, talking about aging, sickness, death. I mean, it's just like, in just saying the words, you feel like it's sort of, <laughs> the spine starts to slump and the, I want, land of limitless light I want that <laughs> give me the pure land can't we have something a bit brighter and you know cheerful you know, <laughs> comforting and the, the later schools of Buddhism uh, um, in, in you know amongst the many uh, different strands that were developed the uh, something you know, very powerful presence in northern Asia is the pure land Buddhism where they did, literally did take that principle of, of um, say the uh, uh, the pure lands or the the the, the heavenly realms of, of limitless light and and uh, energy and so forth and amplify those and make them into a, you know, a, a goal of Buddhist practice or at least a, a very very pleasant stopover before arriving at Nibbana so the pure land Buddhism is uh, is that it's, it has its basis in, in Theravada tradition as well it's called the Sudavasa they're the realms that you go to if you're a non-returner. And so if, you, if you're a non-returner, then when the body dies, you go and get reborn in one of the pure lands, which of course is like 80,000 eons of, of unutterable bliss. And then uh, after a, a lifetime in the, in the pure lands, then of course you, you, you pop off to Parinibbana. So the idea of Nibbana is still a little bit of a chill to that. I mean, Nibbana means cool. <laughs> so... You know, the, even in the, the northern Buddhist tradition, Nibbana still got this kind of indescribable, no return beyond this door, nothing can be said about it. So that it's sort of beyond the realms of description of, of infinite light or infinite joy or, 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 or uh, incalculable bliss and love for, for eons. That we, we like the realms of the describable, of the familiar. And we think, well, okay, well, Nibbana might be really, really, really good, but, you know, 80,000 eons of, of incalculable bliss sounds kind of a nice interlude before <laughs> stepping through that door. So, ergo, pure land Buddhism. So, so the Theravada does get a bit of a bad rap because of, of um, not putting so much emphasis on that kind of thing, or not, not having picked that up so much. But 
aiming straight at things like aging, sickness, death, and these sort of downer words. <laughs> but uh, and certainly when I first came across um, Buddhism in Thailand, that was really my uh, first major contact with Buddhism. My, it was my immediate feeling was, well, these guys are pretty sour. <laughs> They've got a bit of a, a downer on life. Because I was much more of a sort of love and light and infinite bliss type of character. That seemed to be much more what I was intent on aiming at. But as the years have gone by, I see the genius of the Buddha in um, uh, pointing directly at these qualities. Because what happens is that when, when we turn and directly uh, attend to um, those elements of, of life, the elements which are, are not uh, exciting or not inspiring, but which are are painful, are challenging, difficult, that we, we in, instinctually look upon as a loss or as an imposition or an impingement, negative impingement on us. What happens when we turn to, to actually directly face towards it is then we open up the, the door that the Buddha found um, in that same uh, appreciation. It's like, why do I not seek what's beyond it? And it's a strange, it's a, again, this strange irony whereby it's only when you actually turn and face it and meet it, then you actually can see past it. As long as we're not turning to face it and accept it, then it seems that we can't see anything other than it. We give it a solidity. We impart a solidity, a validity to it that it doesn't actually possess. And it's only when you, you kind of look closely, it's like you can see the strings on the puppet. You know, you can see the... the uh, the uh, the guy behind the uh, the behind the screen, the um, uh, that is pulling the levers. The guy behind the the smoke and mirrors. What was the name of that fellow in the Wizard of Oz? The great, the great something or other. The great Oz. The great Oz. <laughs> Thank you. The Great Oz, and it's uh, so that uh, so in in our practice, there's like a daily recollection of I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I'm of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I've not gone beyond dying. And uh, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. Will become separated from me. Now you might think beginning your day with this kind of thought is a way to get yourself. <laughs> In a really negative mood, you know. it's like you know, it felt bad enough when you woke up, and now you know <laughs> it's even worse. You know. But uh, <clears throat> it's a strange thing. But when we do uh, actually acknowledge that, and something in our heart, like the door in our heart, opens, uh, and this intuition of that which is beyond, that which is unborn, that which is unailing, that which is undying, deathless unconditioned. It's like the doorway to that quality is opened by the very act of attention, by the very act of acceptance, by that kind of mindful um, acknowledgement of saying, yes, this is part of nature. This is part of the natural order. Because of birth, there is death. When a system comes together, when it integrates, then it it eventually it disintegrates. It has to happen. There's no living being anywhere in the universe that has a, a, a body that that uh, functions in perfect, uh, perfect health. 
from beginning to end. It can't be. It just doesn't, nature doesn't work that way. So why should this body be that way? Similarly, death. Because of the cause of death is birth. So that uh, when in that act of turning towards an acknowledgement of, of, of wise reflection, it's, it's a, a kind of raw feeling. It's like a, a, a bitter medicine. But like a, any of you have taken uh, Chinese medicine or, or Tibetan medicine, even, even worse. <laughs> I was on a course of Tibetan medicine for a couple of years. I mean, it's really evil. <laughs> <laughs> foul, foul-tasting stuff, but it uh, it did the job, and so that in the same way, when we when we when we recollect in that way, yeah, aging, sickness, death, these are inevitable verities of of the, as as a result of being born. How, you know, when a human body is born, this is what comes with it. This is the package deal. Then it's a bitter taste just to rouse that thought, but then uh, in the in the uh, the after effect of that taste then is this joyfulness, this quality of, of peacefulness. So yes, well, that is part of nature, but also that is not truly and wholly what I am. This is not me. This is not what I am. This is not myself. The heart intuits that which is beyond, that which is unborn, undying, that it, which is not fettered to the wheel. And that's the point of it. We're not, trying to make, we're not in this business to make ourselves more depressed. I became a a Buddhist monk to enjoy my life, not to make myself miserable. So this is the way that it it works. And that, um, so that uh, uh, one of the most powerful practices that we have is like a conscious recollection of, of, uh, particularly of death, that's of of all the messengers, that's the most fearsome. One of the the kinds of, of practice I like to do I'd like to teach is um, you know, sometime in a retreat, I'll, I'll say at the beginning of a sitting, uh, okay, imagine this is the, uh, the last few minutes of your life. And this may, sitting might be half an hour, might be 40 minutes, 45 minutes, you know, somewhere in there, 50 minutes. Yeah. But at some point, the bell's going to ring. Okay, you've got about 45 minutes left to live. Give or take. And when the bell rings, you've got as much time as it takes for the sound to fade to get ready to go. So just as an imaginative exercise saying, you know, when the bell rings, that's the last moment of your life. And I did this as a practice for myself for years and years. It doesn't really work if if you're the bell ringer. (laughs) 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 Kind of loses some of its zing. But uh, uh, for years, I I did this practice. Boy, is it revealing. It's like... The, the, the insight being, do I really want to be hanging on to this particular thing if this is my last thought, if this is what I'm going to check out with? And if this, also on the understanding that the thought that the mind is dwelling upon at the, uh, with, the, with the last moment of life substantially conditions the, where the, the, um, any kind of rebirth might occur. So uh, it's, uh, when one enters into that kind of exercise with, with a bit of conviction, it's very revealing because, you know, as the mind sort of picks up this and starts worrying about that, we say, well, I'm going to be dead in half an hour. And what's the point of worrying about my knees, whether I need an operation? It's like, forget it. <laughs> it's not going to happen. Or worrying about what happened last week, but it's last week, you know. 
what we're going to do with our, our, you know, paying our credit card bill. <laughs> well, they can find somebody to sue, but you know, I'm not going to be around. <laughs> it's extraordinary the number of things, the, the kind of rearrangement of priorities that occurs. So it's a kind of useful exercise that that, that I do, and, and I find that if one does that. In a, you know, a few days into a retreat, the level of attention in the room is very, very noticeably acute. And that uh, we, we, we see a lot of things about ourselves. So, um, say, I, I thought of suggesting um, that uh, as a general theme, as part of a theme for this week, we could assume that at uh, 5 o'clock Saturday afternoon, which is the, the um, listed finishing time for the, this retreat. Say, so, okay, we, we have until five o'clock on Saturday. And uh, that's how long we can expect to live, say. So, we've got about a week, just under a week to play with. So if we had a week to live, what would we want to dwell upon? What would come up in our minds? And again, this is it's a, a kind of an exercise that it only has power if you put attention into it, if you give it life. And I know um, Stephen Levine has uh, been doing workshops. Uh, he wrote a book called A Year to Live um, with a similar theme in mind. I haven't, must confess I haven't actually read the book. <laughs> but uh, it's it's very potent kind of practice. You know, if you, if you reflect... So clearly and deeply, I, well, if I if I really was only going to live another week, what would be important to me? What would come up? All the things that that I I haven't done, all the things I have done that I wish I hadn't done, all the things that I've half done. There's a a shaking up of of priorities. A lot of things just fall away. A lot of things just. Uh, that we, we think of as, oh, you know, this project I'm in the middle of, or this thing I'm working on, what I'm heading towards, or what I'd like to do sometime. It's like, if we've only got a week, it's not going to happen. And that uh, it's, it's very, very uh, skillful and revealing. It can be also a bit intimidating, because you think, boy, have I got some work to do. But also... Uh, in a strange way, what happens is that along with all, you know, the, the, the list of, of you know, spiritual work that needs to be accomplished in the next week, you also have a whole massive uh, array of stuff that we thought we had to do and that, that seemed important or significant that just evaporates. It just becomes like, well, that's not something I really need to spend a lot of energy on, really. And uh, the, one taps into a very deep insight into what's of meaning, what's of value, and what's not. A few years ago, about four years ago, um, just after I moved here to the States, uh, I uh, was diagnosed with melanoma. And uh, from a, a, a mole that went erratic, got over-enthusiastic, and so uh, it was really very very interesting in the Buddhist sense of the word you know. <laughs> particularly because there was two stages of the diagnosis 
one stage, the first stage was, this is definitely melanoma. And then they did all kinds of blood tests and x-rays and things, and all of the, and, and took the, the skin off. And actually, it was a whole great chunk of flesh they took out. Sent it off to Stanford, to the laboratories, to get tested. So there was a week between the time that I knew it was definitely melanoma and before the tests came back to, to say how extensive it was or what stage it was. And just the year before, uh, one of our students uh, had been diagnosed with recurrent melanoma and had been told, um, you have a six or seven months to live. And uh, it, it turned out to be a, a faulty diagnosis. But I just spent a lot, many uh, hours the year before with her, sort of helping her and counseling her and, and sort of working with that, both when she was told, you know, you're going to be dead by Christmas, and then the feeling of rage and resentment when she was told, sorry, <laughs> we, we, got, we didn't look at the, uh, the t- lab tests right. You know, you, you know, it's melanoma, but it's not, it's not fatal. So anyway, I'd kind of been through that with her the year before, and suddenly, boom, you know, it's one with my name on. So it was, was a very, very interesting week. And it was, it was interesting, for, for, it was amplified for a couple of reasons, one of which was um, that this was just a, a few weeks after my 40th birthday and just three or four months after arriving in the States to open up the monastery here. So I'd been in the process of, 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 uh, of uh, visiting here for a few months each year and and then finally the conditions had come together to open up a Bayagiri monastery. And so finally it was all happening, and it was all coming together, and it was, we had this place and this beautiful piece of land, and then the, you know, the things were, were finally uh, in place. And, and so there was this serious momentum about we've got projects, things to do, you know, cabins to build, um, stuff happening, teachings and retreats and uh, this, that, and the other. And uh, and suddenly, here's this presence saying, "Well, yes, there are projects, <laughs> but you might not be around to, to complete them. You don't know. It could be that the you know the tests come back from Stanford and say, you know, you're going to be dead by Christmas. Yeah, I'd had no clue, not not the slightest clue. Couldn't tell. So." Um, the, uh, all of the reasonable things that I've been pouring my energy into and all the people around the monastery, all the, 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 you know, the members of Sangapala and the people who've been working really hard to, to you know, supporting the community, helping us to get established, buying the land, you know, the 10,000 things. Suddenly, oh, it all looks different. Maybe, you know, I've, you know, I've helped to catalyze this, but maybe I'm not going to be around. Uh-huh. The other piece that was also um, made it even more interesting was that just exactly during that week, I was invited to go down to Esalen Institute and help to, to uh, lead a, a conference on compassion with uh, people like Brother David Steindlrast and uh, uh, Alan Jones, who's the Dean of Grace Cathedral, and a few other characters, uh, Chris Dessa, who was the Earth Day a person who created Earth Day, a few other people. And so here I was, you know, at, at Esalen with this whole crowd of people and these bright minds. And, 
you know, having these discussions and giving these talks and so forth on, on compassion. And uh, uh, Esalen is, is um, a place where there's a, a, a very potent um, aura of uh, neediness in the air. <laughs> See, I should firmly establish myself in right speech at this point. So. <laughs> There's, there's a certain, um, let's say, uh, culture of woundedness. Uh, you know, I am this, this wounded being and, um, uh, and uh, neediness uh, in the air. And so that uh, the impulse to say, like, you think you've got problems. <laughs> well, let me tell you, you know. And, <laughs> It was an extraordinary uh, resolve was required not to capitalize on my <laughs> my diagnosis to get some mileage and to put a few people in their places. <laughs> so there was the impulse to, the, the, which was I realized was decidedly uncompassionate. <laughs> so with all of the spiritual resources I had at my disposal, I restrained myself. And uh, as it happened through some very strange circumstances, it was uh, wheedled out of me um, uh, before the end of the week, but, but without me actually kind of wanting to, to mention anything. But it was extraordinarily uh, powerful having to be in this position of uh, kind of expressing uh, compassion or, or kind of talking about it and... and um, being in this very vulnerable, extraordinarily sort of tender place myself, like literally not knowing I'm going to get a, a letter from, from the lab. And it could say, fine, no problem, everything's okay, you know, no big deal. Or anything to you know, start making plans. You've know, you, you got three months to go. And as it was when, when it came back, uh, then it was the, the former rather than the latter. It was, just, it was a, uh, a not very extensive it was a kind of early stage uh, malignancy, and and I and they they took it out, and and uh, I have to just keep out the sunshine. And I went onto a regime of Tibetan medicine, the, the aforementioned foul <laughs> Tibetan medicine, and a completely flavor-free diet for a couple of years. Um, and so that the, you know the condition is gone now, uh, is resolved. But it was a, it was a very powerful teaching. Just how how much uh, it revealed, because even though you know as a Buddhist monk you end up talking about you know, about death and impermanence and so forth all the time. I mean, as the words roll out, you tell all these stories and you have all these kind of ideas and quotes from the scriptures. But then when you have got your name on it, you know, it's like oh oh <laughs> this is different. There's a whole. Uh, potency to it that I'd never experienced before, that just the imagination was not really able to reach into. And boy, did my priority list get shaken up during that week, just as I was describing. It's like a lot of things that I thought I was in the middle of that, you know, that I would like to do one day or I'm in the process of, it's like just evaporated. And certainly I could see there was a lot more spiritual work that needed to be done. But also there was this, and even though it was... um, you know, in some ways, um, not exactly disappointing, but um, daunting. There was this extraordinary like taste of the real. I was like, ah, well, 
okay, now, <laughs> a lot of uh, superficiality can, you know, is just falling off here. And so this experience of like, you know, life, life in the raw, you know, real life, and, and the sense of, of no interest in just distraction or superficiality or, or anything that was not concerned with, with uh, the, uh, the great matter, the, the matter of, of uh, realization of truth, of, of uh, letting go of delusion of the, the 10,000 ties that, that, uh, that bind the heart. So it was that, that weird sort of bittersweet mixture of both being frightening or daunting, but also e- extraordinarily uh, joyful and delightful and uh, beautiful. I wasn't exactly disappointed when I got the diagnosis. <laughs> but uh, I did notice how quickly the complacency... <laughs> Re-established itself. Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. Okay. <laughs> Why am I not leaping out of my sleeping bag with such speed as I was, you know, last week when I had a, when I only had three months to live? Some years ago, I, I uh, met um, on a similar theme. I met this guy uh, in a hospital in England who had uh, motor neurone disease. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've told this story many times because it affected me very deeply. Um, this, uh, by the time I met this fellow, he was uh, dead from the neck down, completely paralyzed. Uh, had, he contracted motor neurone disease about 18 months before. And for those of you who don't know, the way that, that it, the disease works is that your extremities... Uh, the, the nerves in, in your extremities die, like in the fingers and toes, and slowly they die back, and you lose mobility and sensation. Piece by piece, it moves through the body in a pretty much unstoppable way. And it was by the time I met him, it was sort of up to his his chin, and so um, he couldn't speak, uh, and he knew he had maximum of six weeks to live. Uh, after a certain point, you can't cough and you can't. Uh, clear the lungs and so forth and sooner or later you get lung obstructions and pneumonia and such like and, and you die. So he knew that he had a, a definite time limit that was, that was possible for him to live. And, uh, and it's also, the, it's not as though the body is, is completely numb. It's actually just a, a kind of blurry presence of uncomfortable feeling. Um, that uh, that he was experiencing, and the way he communicated was he had a, a knitting needle in a champagne cork <laughs> in his mouth, and a letter board, and he pointed letters, and he held the board. And he was one of the most joyful people I'd ever met in my entire life, and it, it was so amazing, was sincerely just bubbling with joy, uh, almost uncontained. His eyes uh, were, were this spark. I never had seen eyes so bright and sparkling and clear. It was extraordinary. And the reason why was because having been so brutally confronted by the messengers, <laughs> that he was a very dynamic, active guy. He was a building contractor, had been a, a, a paratrooper in the military, and was a very sort of get-up-and-go, go-out-and-do-it guy. 
and suddenly, boom, the plug was pulled. And so he went through all the stages of, you know, of denial and resentment and anger and so forth and depression. Finally, he got to this place of complete surrender. And what he found was that he had recognized how futile and pointless and so much of what he had possessed him throughout his life. How utterly ridiculous and pointless it was. All the arguments he'd had, all the things he'd chased after, the, you know, the pride he'd had at his sort of possessions or you know, physical achievements or his you know, physical prowess of one kind or another, just seemed so insignificant. And the, the ground base of what he was experiencing was just this, this brilliant, clear awareness of, uh, of each moment. And that uh, one of the most powerful uh, points of the conversation was where he, he kind of lifted up his neck and pointed his knitting needle sort of around the hospital ward. And there were these uh, other patients and then lots of you know, doctors and, and nurses uh, scuttling around the place and you know, kind of young, vibrant pe- people and, and uh, kind of chatting and, and kind of uh, getting on with each other and flirting and so forth. And he pointed his needle, knitting needle around and said, he says, these poor people, I feel really sorry for them. Kind of spelling it out on the board. Yeah. I feel really sorry for them. They don't understand. And, when I, and if I try to explain, no one gets it. They think, oh, poor John, he's really lost it. <laughs> I didn't lose it, I found it. <laughs> and that it was extraordinary because he was sincerely glad, incredibly grateful that this, this disease had hit him, like a, you know, run over him like a bulldozer. He said, because if this hadn't happened, there's no way I would ever have stopped long enough to realize what the truth is, what's important in life, what's real. I would never, it would never have ever got it. He said, and even though this is pretty miserable in some ways, this is the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And you could see he wasn't just being, trying to be, you know, looking on the bright side. (laughs) (laughs) This guy was singing. He was like, the name, his name, Nightingale, was really appropriate. He was just like singing. This kind of brilliant, clear song. His, the brightness of his heart was amazing. And he did. He died about a month or so. Five weeks later, he died. And, you know, when we talk about you know, reflections on death and, and all this kind of exercise I was describing, like, you know, imagining five o'clock on Saturday, okay, just got a few minutes less to go. <laughs> you know, it's not... And we think, oh, oh, it's just an exercise. It's not for real, but... Just one of our friends who's here on this retreat said, you know, she was flying in from, from Seattle, and you know, the plane is coming into land at San Francisco Airport. Suddenly, boom, takes a, a very steep upward climb. Someone's coming underneath in a in a private plane. Oops. How many of us have have had friends of ours? people that we know, family members, our loved ones, our parents, our children. Suddenly you get a phone call. Oh, car wreck, they're gone. Overdose, they're gone. Brain hemorrhage, they're gone. This happens so often. So that, you know, that 
when we really sincerely take that to heart and recognize, yeah, me too, then we bring about this, this kind of, of reflection. And what it brings forth, like what it brought forth in this, this fellow John Nightingale, and what it bring, brought forth in my own heart, that experience with the, with the cancer, was uh, that the, the primacy of the quality of, of awareness, of knowing, of, uh, that this is the, if you like, the purity of the mind manifests as this, this kind of clear awareness that is undisturbable, which is untroubled, which is un, unconditioned, a kind of formless, bright quality of, of mind. That uh, in the midst of all that's changing and, and coming and going, and that which is sort of uh, beautiful or ugly and painful or, or, or pleasant, this, uh, this quality of, of knowing, the, the Buddha mind, that quality of awareness, that is the, uh, like the unshakable presence which is the, uh, say, the environment for all other experience, and we and the heart realizes that well, whatever else you know, comes and goes, this this is the basic reality. This is the basic. This is what we can trust that that, that the ten thousand forms come and go, and perceptions and moods come and go. Like Ajahn Chah would say, they 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 they, they flutter like a, a leaf fluttering in the wind. And we get confused because of the, that, the fluttering, the shaking, the, the, the coming and going of moods and feelings and perceptions. But the heart, which knows them, is utterly still, is utterly clear, peaceful, pure in and of itself. So in the scriptures it says, uh, the, uh, it quotes the Buddha as saying, um, Pabasara midang bikawe akandukehi kire sehi. The heart is, is intrinsically radiant, but defilements, kilesa, confusions, uh, come and visit. It is obscured, that, that radiance is obscured by the visitors, by the confusions, obstructions, defilements. So that this is, we, the, it's those kind of reflections bring that forth to us. They, they, in a way, they elicit that insight into the fact that, oh, the basic reality of, of the mind, a fundamental quality, is this pure awareness, which is incorruptible, unshakable, which is, which is not created. It's not something that's personal. It's not like some of us have got it and some of us haven't. It's the very uh, mind ground, if you like. It's the, and that quality of knowing is the, is the primal uh, activity, primal quality of, of our own being, of our own heart, our own mind. And so that we, uh, in our practice is aimed at beginning to trust that, opening the door to that quality, beginning to trust that, to, to rely upon that. So this is what we mean by taking refuge in Buddha, it's not a matter of just bowing to a statue or saying, I think you know, Gautama Buddha was really wise and I trust his words. The, the, the Buddha, which is the refuge, is not the, you know, the, the person who walked around in India two and a half thousand years ago 
as a great wise mentor and spiritual teacher. But the Buddha, which is the refuge, is that very quality of our own being, of your own being right now, which is, which is aware, which knows. Not just which cognizes or which is kind of thinking. It's not like knowing about, but the very fabric of, of awareness itself. That is the, 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 the Buddha mind. And it's said over and over again that that mind, even, that quality, is identical, whether it's in us or whether it's in, the, in Gautama Buddha himself or any other enlightened being. It's the same quality. It's just like the water that falls out of the sky, you know, the water that uh, flows in the rivers, the water in the deepest oceans, the water frozen in the ice of Antarctica. It's just water. It's the same water. So, you know, we pick it up as a, uh, in terms, you can take this idea or this principle. Um, you know, I say it in an emphatic way, and so the, you know, the, um, and it's not something just to believe in. Say, oh, well, you know, Ajahn Amaro said it, therefore, you know, maybe it's true. <laughs> or we, have, we then feel doubts about it, like, oh, well, maybe that's so, um, I'm not sure, you know, my mind's pretty murky. It's pretty sludge-like down there, and you know. So certainly, you know, doubts can arise. So that this is something to investigate, to to search and to 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 uh, explore, and to you know, to use this time we are together, this this uh, this uh, week that we have, to see, you know, when when the confusion breaks up when there's a moment of clarity and mindfulness, when the, the heart is free from clinging, what's there? What do we experience? And my, you know, over the years of, of practicing in this way, what I find is as soon as the clinging stops, there's peacefulness, there's openness, no sense of self, no sense of time. Everything is fine. It's a kind of normality <laughs> normality at last a quiet normality a pure simplicity every time you know as soon as the clinging stops ah simple peaceful clear open perfect So as we are um, practicing, you know, particularly like today, the first day of the retreat, and as I was saying during the day, you know, that the mind kind of goes on and on. It's sort of reiterating, you know, all the stuff that was happening last week, and you know, all that we've got to do next week, and you know, little sort of character analyses of of ourselves and the people around us, and people in our family, and the problem with this one, and what are we going to do about that one, and you know. The kind of endless chewing over, like chewing the cud of our of our our realm, a kind of karmic report card, you know, expectations of the future, and and so we can get pretty kind of depressed. <laughs> the mind going on and on and on, 
chattering about this, opinionating about that, waves of emotion and feeling getting caught up in this and worried about that and excited about this and irritated by that. So what we're doing uh, is uh, making a shift. We're, we hear that, we listen to that. And we're taking a, a, a shift so that as the, 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 the flow of experience is, is received, rather than seeing it in terms of, oh, this is what I'm thinking, this is me and my thoughts, me and my feelings, me and my moods, me and my world, me and my problems, which is our ordinary everyday evaluation, right? I mean, it's completely normal everyday way of, of reckoning what's going on. Seems quite reasonable, right? <laughs> but as long as we're locked into that, that way of framing it, then we're locked into the, we're locking the heart into birth and death, into the limited, the bound, the aging, the ailing, the sorrow bound, the dying, and that uh, when in uh, when instead we see, or oh, here is the Buddha mind. This is the Buddha mind, knowing nature knowing the way things are. This is the quality of, of awareness, of knowing, experiencing the arising and passing of, of sight, sound, smell, taste and touch. Form, feelings, perceptions, mind states, thoughts, emotions, consciousness. That's what's happening, isn't it? We're not pretending. This isn't a kind of just a sort of a, a nice way of sugaring everything over. I mean, this is actually what's happening. I mean, even right right now, there's the feelings of your body, the the weight of of your body on the cushion, the sound of my voice, the feelings of heat or cold, different moods of of uh, interest or boredom, comfort and discomfort, energy or tiredness. These are forms, feelings, perceptions arising, passing away. Where are they happening? They're happening in the field of our own awareness. They're not happening anywhere else, are they? <laughs> so this is actually not just a, a kind of clever way of, of uh, rethinking it or, or trying to um, just label things differently. It's like, a, it's like going to a, a, a deeper appreciation of what has always been happening. That right now, as the Buddha mind the awareness, knowing the way things are, knowing the patterns of nature. So that uh, when we make that shift from me and my world, me and my problems, to the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, then suddenly we go from a, a, a me in here, um, alienated from some degree or, or oppressed by or you know, trying to work things out with you know, a world out there, you know, or a world you know, within my mind of my thoughts and emotions. As soon as that shift is made to resting in awareness, the awareness, knowing the way things are, knowing the flow of nature, seeing things not in a personal way, but in a way uh, centered on, on uh, an appreciation of the, the flow of nature, of births and deaths, risings and passings of the natural order, then suddenly the heart is at ease. Everything is okay. There's a, a rightness to it. And when, when, 
we're considering what's a, a definition for dukkha, this sort of Pali word that encompasses all of the, the nasty stuff, dukkha. <laughs> when, we, when we are usually translated as suffering or dissatisfaction. It's a, in a way that the best way of rendering it is the feeling of not rightness, the feeling that something is out of order with the universe right now. And so in that moment of recognizing the way things are, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, then suddenly there is a, there's rightness. Everything is in order. The heart apprehends directly the fundamental orderedness of the universe. We might see that a particular thing is not what I would like, what I like. You know, I don't like pain in my knees or I don't like getting soggy socks. <laughs> I don't like that, but it's like, well, if you have socks on and you walk through the puddles, then you get wet socks. <laughs> That's the natural result. It's the natural order of things. That which we've come together with, we get separated from. It's that way. We don't like the separation, but how could it be otherwise? So that that, when the heart uh, recognizes, apprehends directly that quality of of orderedness, of integration, then there's no suffering. There's there's a a quality of, of freedom and ease. Now, the, um, one of the ways to um, sustain this kind of insight and cultivate this insight, Ajahn Chah used to say, uh, uncertainty is the Buddha. Because the mind that recognizes uncertainty is the Buddha mind. So that doesn't mean if you're full of doubts and confusion, that you're already a Buddha. <laughs> so, oh, I've got lots of doubts. I'm uncertain about all kinds of things. I must be a Buddha already. No. It means that mind which directly apprehends, knows that everything's uncertain. The future is uncertain. Unpredictable. That that, that is the, the mind that is truly aware when we, uh, we recognize that the world of things, mental and physical, is unstable, is uncertain, is not fixed, that anything can happen, then we no longer take refuge in, that, in the world of things. It's like the heart is not drawn to trying to find satisfaction or completion, wholeness, in that which is um, unstable, fragment, fragmenting, ephemeral. So that as an ongoing reflection, and oftentimes yeah, anicca is translated as impermanence or transiency, but uh, Ajahn Chah used to far more use the word uh, uncertainty to describe it. Things are uncertain. And in a way that has a, a more realistic emotional content to it. Impermanent is a bit more abstract and, and conceptual or structural. Uncertainty is the way the heart receives that transiency. It's the feeling associated with the, the meeting with 
instability and, tr- and change. So in a way, I find that a, a more useful translation. So as we go about our, our day and the, the, uh, the evening session and the going to our rooms and the flow of the meditation and the formal times, the informal times, the chanting and walking and sitting and so forth, just uh, all of our, the aspects of our day, eating and walking, taking a shower, sleeping, whatever it might be that we're doing, chopping veggies, sitting meditating, to be arousing the sense of, of uh, recognizing the, the, uh, the quality of uh, uncertainty, looking at our own mind states, our own judgments, our own opinions, our creations about the past and the future, things that we feel so sure about or so worried it might be that way. As soon as we, re- we recollect, oh, it's uncertain, not, not a sure thing, then notice how that, in the same way, frees things up. It creates space. We are going to recognize the space around our mental creations, our judgments, our perceptions. And then notice that even though, again, it's like there's a challenge. It's like, oh, because we, we like certainty. We long for certainty. So there's a bitterness in that recognition of uncertainty, of instability. But as, uh, in the same way, when we, we, we really receive that, uh, allow that bitterness to go through, then on the other side of it, there's this joyful uh, ease that you, you find yourself unable to, to cling or to hold to or to invest your heart in, in, uh, in that which is unstable. And so in that, we find a, a moment, a, a fragment, fragmentary experience of, of freedom. This is what we mean by taking refuge in Buddha. He said, uh, you know, one who, if, if a person took hold of, this is, the, you know, the Buddha said, if the person took hold of the edge of my robe and followed me around everywhere I went for 20 years, if, the, if that person's heart was still filled with, with self-centered clinging, greed, hatred, and delusion, then that, would, uh, that person would be far from the Tathagata and I would be far from them. But if someone who lived a hundred leagues away has a heart which is free from greed, hatred, and delusion, a heart which is uh, focused on Dhamma, uh, awakened to the Dhamma, then it is, this, it is as if they were sitting face-to-face with the Tathagata right here and now. So that this... Uh, the simple process of kind of recollection, bearing these, these themes in mind, bringing these themes to mind, just help us to like, catalyze that, that transformation of uh, going from the self-centered view to the, the Dharma-centered view, nature-centered. So just establishing that within our hearts, taking the trouble to do that, and then noticing, when we do that, what's the effect? And when we see, when we feel for ourselves, when we recognize the beauty of that effect, then enjoy it. Say, oh yeah, this is it. <laughs> if, I, if the clinging stops, it feels real good. Aha, enjoy it. <laughs> and then let that uh, empower a quality of faith, trust. Yeah, this is the path. 
If I do this, it gets better. Aha, this is the path. And allow that to, to feed the faith and confidence to uh, help you move forward. So I offer these words for reflection this evening. We can uh, finish with the um, let's see suffusion with divine abidings. Let's see the uh, sorry the uh, sending forth of loving kindness, page twenty five. Yeah, page 25. I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with loving kindness. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world, with a mind imbued with loving kindness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will, I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with compassion. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world, with a mind imbued with compassion, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with gladness, Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, 
so above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide, pervading the all-encompassing world, with a mind imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. I will abide, pervading one quarter, with a mind imbued with equanimity, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth, so above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself. I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world with a mind imbued with equanimity, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the blessed one. The teaching, so completely explained by him, I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Sangha. So in Buddhism, we talk a lot about the illusion of time and the interplay of conventional and ultimate realities and such like things. And tonight is the night when the clocks change. So this clock says it is now 9.41. So uh, it will now move back and say 8.41. So we move our clocks back. So in fact, even though you thought you were going to have to get up earlier tomorrow, (laughs) in real time, or at least the old conventional time, you will actually have an extra half hour. (laughs) Anyway. At two o'clock in the morning, it will change. You can change your clocks now. But, uh, 
they go back tonight. Are all the bell ringers here? The morning bell ringers? Yes? Okay. It's the most important person to know.